0: This podcast contains references to violent crime and sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Australia on this day. My name is Michael Adams and today we're going back to Sunday, the 22nd of September, 1974. That was the day that Stuart John Regan, the cold-blooded killer known as the magician for his skill at making people disappear, got his bloody comeuppance on a Sydney street. The man who struck fear into the hearts of cops, crims and civilians alike was born on the 13th of September 1945. Stuart John Regan spent his early years in the country town of Young in southwestern New South Wales. He wasn't a good student though, his mother would later say he'd been very good at art. From an early age, Regan's violent behaviour was chilling. He delighted in catching, torturing and killing animals, and the reactions that these atrocities got from his shocked and sickened mates. Regan's parents divorced and he moved to Sydney with his mother Claire, who was such a controlling figure that he'd call her the Colonel. As a teenager, he got into so much trouble that he was sent to Gosford Boys Home. Gosford and similar institutions are now notorious for turning out some of Australia's worst and most violent criminals. Indeed, it's where Regan first met fellow future crook and killer, Nettie Smith. After nine months at Gosford, Regan returned to Sydney. His mother would later say that he'd wanted to join the army and was desperately disappointed when he was rejected on account of his flat feet. But the story went that Regan wanted to join the army so he could indulge his heart's desire, and that was killing people. At the age of 17, Regan went to work as a pimp in Sydney's King's Cross. A 1962 mugshot shows a hard-faced young man with a scarred lip who these days brings to mind the American actor Joaquin Phoenix. Despite his youth, Regan was soon running a stable of sex workers and establishing a reputation as a brutally violent standover man. The worst story about him was how he'd bashed a man into insensibility and then put out a lit cigarette in his unconscious victim's eye. Not a bloke to cross, Stuart John Regan would bash you as soon as look at you. He didn't just react violently to threats or to protect his turf. He'd actually go out looking to beat people at random just for the psychopathic thrill that it offered him. While he had a string of minor convictions, in early June 1965, Regan and two of his associates faced far more serious charges. Here's how the Canberra Times began its report on the case. Quote, Three youths threatened to disfigure a man for life with a burning poker before raping his 17-year-old fiancé in a King's Cross flat, a policeman told Central Court today. According to the police, Regan and his associates had forced their way in, threatening the man and his fiancé at knife point, demanding money, and then raping the woman, telling her not to resist, or they'd make her boyfriend suffer. Setting the pace for much of the rest of his career, Stuart John Regan tried to present himself as an innocent citizen victimised by the police. Weeping in court, he told the magistrate, quote, I have been bashed by five police a minute ago. Realising these were serious allegations that needed to be heard, the magistrate allowed him to state what he claimed had happened in the lead-up to his court appearance. Regan said, quote, I'm not a criminal. I was asked to go in a lineup." When I refused, I was bashed by five policemen. I didn't do anything to anybody. Police kicked and punched me below the belt and hit me with a baton. A doctor examined him, finding minor abrasions to his left side and swelling on his left cheekbone, though the medico said that these injuries were inconsistent with his story. What was consistent with much of his criminal career was that Stuart John Regan beat this rape and assault rap. Regan didn't smoke, drink, or spend his ill-gotten cash on fast cars or flashy clothes. He was all about building a criminal empire. He ran brothels, keeping his sex workers in line with threats and violence. He bought and renovated properties and even owned two dress shops that he could use as fronts for selling stolen goods. Regan struck up an uneasy business partnership with another cook named Barry Flock, known around the traps as Big Barry. But the two men had a falling out, reportedly over $800, and on the morning of the 16th of January 1967, Big Barry was found dead, shot four times in the head, in the jungle-like grounds of the Scottish Hospital in Paddington. Regan was a suspect, but the police couldn't prove anything. On the 23rd of March 1967, Regan took out an ad in the Sydney Morning Herald that was an open letter to the police commissioner. In it, he said he was prepared to be interrogated at any time about any matter so long as his lawyer was present. If he was otherwise approached, quote, be it publicly known that I will have nothing to say apart from my name and address. This was just another part of his strategy to make any sort of police action against him seem like harassment yet the cops did put him away for a short stretch in Long Bay Jail around the start of 1968 and it was in prison that he again met Nettie Smith. In his 1995 memoir, Catch and Kill Your Own, Smith said that while Regan helped him out with books and extra food, he never really took to the bloke. Quote, "'Regan was a very strange person, "'not exactly ugly but with a sort of hair lip "'and the coldest eyes I have ever seen in any man.'" Smith continued... I don't know of anybody who was as feared in the underworld as he was. He struck fear into the hearts of everyone he met, and even those who had only heard about him shrank at the mention of his name. That description was really something coming from Arthur Nettie Smith, given the sort of people he ran with his whole life. Stuart John Regan hadn't quite earned this reputation in 1968. He'd earn it and earn the nickname The Magician by making a lot of people disappear in the years to come. Depending on which account you read, Stuart John Regan was suspected of killing six, eight, ten, or more than a dozen people. In his book, Nettie Smith credits The Magician with the disappearance of minor thug Robert Donnelly. Smith writes that Donnelly, who was a good mate of his, was killed by Regan as part of a plot to get close to Donnelly's friend, Kevin Gore, head of the notorious toe-cutter gang that preyed on other criminals. And Kevin Gore went missing in the middle of 1972, last seen in the company of the magician. Stuart John Regan appeared to take pleasure in these sinister doings, making it known to the underworld he'd been responsible, safe in the knowledge that police couldn't prove anything or even find the bodies, and that anyone who knew anything was too scared of him to ever testify in court. The magician's growing stature saw him reluctantly embraced by the organised crime outfit known as The Team, which was headed by George Freeman, Lenny McPherson and Stan Smith. But in 1974, Regan crossed two lines that made it increasingly obvious the magician himself had to vanish because he was uncontrollable and bad for business. On the night of the 21st of May 1974, Regan was babysitting three-year-old Carlos Scott Huey while his girlfriend, the child's mother, Helen Scott Huey, was out working for him. Early in the hours of the following morning, Regan claimed, he drove to Taylor Square to get a newspaper, leaving the child in the car for just a few minutes. When he returned to the vehicle, the boy was gone. At least, that's what he told police. They didn't believe him for a second, but they also couldn't prove that he wasn't telling the truth. A reward for Carlos was posted, but the child was never found, with the leading theory being that Regan's volcanic temper had seen him kill the child, dispose of the body, and then go to the cops with the child abduction story. Cruelly, after that, Regan toyed with the police. He let it slip to a man he knew was a police informer that there might be bones buried beneath one of his houses in Woolloomooloo. Regan realised that this man would tell the police, but they'd be unable to do anything about it without blowing this niche's cover. As for Sydney's criminal underworld, they didn't believe his story about Carlos being kidnapped. And now they couldn't avoid the truth. They had a monster in their midst. One Sydney criminal, Jack Clark, known as Ratty Jack, who was close to the team's bigwigs, said to Regan's face what everyone was saying behind his back, that he was the lowest of the low. A child murderer. On the night of the 23rd of August 1974, Raddy Jack was having his regular beers at a pub in Stanmore when he was shot dead through the window. The team was sure it had been Regan. According to Nettie Smith, they fronted him, he denied it, and they let him believe that they believed him. Killing him was easier said than done. He always carried a gun, he wore a bulletproof vest, and he employed four bodyguards. At this time, Regan had launched a fresh attack on Sydney's police, billing himself as the organiser of an activist group he called the Independent Action Group for a Better Police Force. Via this organisation, which was supposedly about cleaning up the city, Regan made a lot of allegations about other criminals involved in illegal gambling. He also claimed that the police were out to get him. He wrote to the New South Wales Police Commissioner saying he feared for his safety, saying that certain police were going to frame him and possibly injure or kill him in the course of making an arrest. Really stirring things up, Regan sent copies of this letter to state politicians, senior New South Wales police, a firm of Sydney solicitors, and to the Commonwealth Police. While the magician might have been good at making people disappear, he also had a talent for making other people want to see him disappear. On Sunday the 22nd of September 1974, Regan spent a pleasant Sunday afternoon picnicking at Watson's Bay with his girlfriend Helen, who'd stayed with him despite her son's disappearance. Late that afternoon, she drove him to Marrickville because he had an important meeting, though he wouldn't say who with or what about. Helen would later tell the coroner's court she'd last seen him outside the Henson Park Hotel at about 6 p.m. A Marrickville shop owner said she'd sold him some cabinossi at around about 10 to 7. Just after he left her shop, she heard several loud bangs. Running outside, she saw him face down in a pool of blood on Chapel Street. Regan had been shot first in the back, then six more bullets had been pumped into his torso and neck. A final headshot had been fired at very close range, between three and six inches. All eight bullets had been from 38 caliber revolvers, but three different guns had been used. In his memoir, Nettie Smith claimed this execution had been carried out by the team, but he didn't name names. A 2011 episode of the TV show Toughnuts showed Stuart John Regan being sweet-talked into handing over his weapons by Sydney crime boss of bosses Paddles Anderson before meeting Stan Smith and George Freeman, thinking he was being taken into a new criminal enterprise. Instead, these Tough Nuts shot him down. In his 1988 autobiography, George Freeman called Regan a, quote, prize animal, but denied any involvement in his murder noting instead that 38 caliber revolvers were what police used as service weapons back then. Even though the magician was dead, he had one last trick up his sleeve. With much fanfare, the police acted on what the informant had told them about the bones beneath the floor of the Woolamaloo house. And they were left red-faced when it turned out that Regan had pranked them by burying animal bones on the property. With The Magician dead, newspapers could now publish what had long been suspected. The following Sunday's Herald Sun ran an article headlined, The Magician's Last Day, a quiet picnic before the bullets barked. The article included this, quote, C.I.B. detectives working on his murder see it as the last chance they have to clear up the mysterious disappearances of six associates and a three-year-old boy. Those cases would never be officially solved. Nor would Stuart John Regan's killers be brought to justice. Claire Regan, the mother of the magician, gave a lengthy interview to the Sun Herald that ran the same day as the article that linked him to seven deaths. In her interview, Claire Regan refused to believe that her boy had been anything other than a non violent Robin Hood style figure who was widely loved throughout Sydney. Yet, according to George Freeman, News of the magician's death was met with cheering in Long Bay Jail. Another man who was relieved to hear he'd been killed was veteran Daily Mirror crime reporter Bill Jenkins. Jenkins, who he met in the 7th of July episode about Graham Thorne and in the Forgotten Australia episode about the fugitive Kevin John Simmons, had been brave enough or foolish enough to hint in print at Stuart John Regan's criminal activities. For this, the magician had vowed to kill him. Bill Jenkins wasn't one to scare easily, but he really had feared for his safety, figuring that if the magician could kill a child, he wouldn't hesitate to shoot him or blow up his car. As Bill Jenkins put it in his 1992 memoir, As Crime Goes By, quote, Stuart John Regan was the deadliest criminal I'd ever met. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to Australia on This Day. Just a note before I go, like many Australian podcasters, my shows are labours of love, mostly supported by money I earn from other work. For the next couple of months, I'll be juggling Australia on this day and Forgotten Australia with a full-time day job, so I'm going to do my best to keep producing episodes as often as I can. Thanks for your patience and for listening, and if you've got a moment and you'd like to help Australia on this day reach more people, I'd love it if you could leave a review and rating at iTunes. Catch you next time.